we've got some big, big news here at UNT Dallas. Dallas, you've got a new hometown team, the UNT Dallas Trailblazers. Students have passed an athletic fee, which will bring intercollegiate athletics to UNT Dallas, men's and women's programs. We will start next fall, fall 2020, men's and women's basketball programs. It's going to be exciting. Next on the agenda is to hire coaches for both squads, begin recruiting this fall, excuse me, this spring, and uh, we'll have teams come together starting in November. Basketball, UNT Dallas. Get in the game. Hello, I'm Greg Campbell. And I'm Jeff Kaplan. And you're listening to the Urban Advantage Podcast. The official voice of the University of North Texas at Dallas. And the Southern Dallas community. Welcome to the Urban Advantage Podcast. Great to have you back with us. We've got a big show today. You know that we've been hitting, uh, you know, really social conscious type of topics on this show. And we're doing that again today. We're looking at why African-American males simply are not going to college, not here at UNT Dallas. And really, this is this is a trend nationwide. It's not a new trend, but it's an alarming trend. And it's something that we really need to talk about here in our Southern Dallas community. We've got two great guests here with us, both of whom work here at UNT Dallas. Hello, my name is Luis Franco. I'm the director for undergraduate admissions here at UNT Dallas. Um, I attended Texas A&M University Commerce for both my undergrad and graduate degrees. So happy to be here. And I am Dr. Ajamu Loving. I uh, teach finance. I'm a finance professor here at University of North Texas, Dallas. And I uh, attended undergrad at uh, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Great guest to have uh, for this topic today, Jeff. You know, this is, uh, this is one of those things where, you know, I'm personally excited to have this conversation because, again, I was one of those few students that happened to be African-American on the campuses that I attended, both at Cornell and at Harvard Business School. So I have this, this affinity with this issue. But, you know, looking back at the, the real statistics, males are enrolling in higher education in an alarmingly uh, low rates these days. At one time, uh, men once represented over 58% of the enrollments uh, on campuses, with women representing 42%. Today, those numbers are exactly the opposite. There are now some 2.2 to 2.5 million more uh, women on campuses than there are men. Wow. And we're talking all, spanning all races. All across the, yeah. all across the country. Now, when you start looking at African-American men, that number gets to be even more serious. Right now, black women, you know, I'm, I'm all for my sisters, black women currently represent two-thirds of all African-American bachelor's degrees in the United States, wow. 70% of all master's degrees, and more than 60% of all doctorates. When you do the analysis, you also find that black women are a majority of all African-American enrollments in law school, medical school, and dental school. And that is having a dramatic impact, not only on the social network of what's, of what's happening to blacks and young black families, and even um, black women who are looking for black mates. And that's a really serious issue now that's happening within the African-American community because there's such a disproportionate 
uh, share now of who's earning the degrees, who has that earning power now, coming out of school and going early into their careers. And not only are men enrolling at a lower level, and particularly black men, but they're not persisting. And I'm hoping we're going to get into this kind of topic today. Those are really startling numbers. And I should say upon our introduction that uh, Professor Loving, uh, Professor of Finance here at UNT Dallas, an African-American male himself. So he has lived this journey as well. And, and, and as well as being a professor here, he's also a mentor mm-hmm. to students and, and someone who helps young African-American males mm-hmm. see that coming to school, coming to the School of Business is going to change their lives for the better. Um, I guess, Dr. Loving, I mean, first of all, you know, here at UNT Dallas, our statistics are the same as nationwide. Very few African-American males, even though we're in a community here with a, with a high population, they're not enrolling in school. Mm. What's your take on, on, first of all, how many, you know, the, 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 the number of, of African-American males you see in, in your courses and, right. and maybe some trends you see as to, to what's going on? And, you know, I, I'd encourage us not to beat up on ourselves too much here at UNT Dallas. We can always do better, but having um, a little over 8%, I think, was the number that I was given in terms of our uh, percentage of black, uh, black men is, you know, 13% is the percentage of black people in the country. So we're not doing horribly, and in comparison to to other schools, we're, we're actually, you know, we're we're out there pushing, and I and I think we we lead with our statistics in terms of how many uh, minorities we have here, and I think it's a, a strength of our university. But I think there's also an opportunity because, as you said, even though we have eight um, percent, when you look at the rest of the participation at our university, you can see that those numbers could be a lot stronger. Um, I went to to your point about um, uh, about the presence of African Americans in school. I uh, my undergrad institution Morehouse is an all male institution, and so I I've seen what it's like when an institution um, is uh, intentional about inviting and retaining and being serious about uh, educating uh, black males, and that's what Morehouse does. And I don't think most institutions have that as their central focus. Um, We have more of a regional focus here, but because of that regional focus and the individuals who make up this this region near to the university, we have by de facto sort of a a thrust towards uh, making certain that we educate African-Americans and we educate Latinos because that's, that's who's here. But we haven't as of, uh, as of yet made it, our our business to directly target them not yet not as a, a and i think we will be doing more of that uh going forward but i think a lot of it is is showing people that there are opportunities for you here that uh you belong and then from here the trajectory and the you know the the payoff is there yeah and, and in fact you you're part of a campaign that is coming up um that you have worked with our producer uh, jared horn here a video series with our African-American male professors in the School of Business mm-hmm. talking directly to the, the, the youth in our, in our communities. Yeah. So. I, I, there have been very rare cases where I've seen a lot of progression when it comes to, uh, to diversity and inclusion without direct intention and effort. 
And I think what's happening here is we are actually being intentional and we are actually putting forth the effort. And when you do those things, you're likely to see the results. Because at the end of the day, everyone wants to be successful. But a lot of times you aren't exposed to um, what success can look like for you, especially in a college or university type of environment, uh, because traditionally people have not come to um, South Dallas area and talk to these students about, hey, you know, your future um, is is a future that uh, necessitates a college degree and it's going to make your life better. I don't think that's a story that's been uh, been echoed as much as it could have been in the Mr. past. Mr. Franco, what are our trends here? What type of trends have we realized in terms of recruiting and retaining um, African-American uh, males? Yeah, sure. So um, I think, like Jeff mentioned, I think we pretty much match uh, what we see nationally. So we do have seen a decrease in number of students who are applying to come to college from uh, minority students, particularly African-American students, uh, Latinx male students. Um, I think this last fall, 2018, are of our class of over a little bit over 300 freshmen, 19 of them were male, African-American males. Um, what, what, what were those numbers? 19. 19 yep. out of 300. A little bit over 300. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's just, you know, about 5% or so of students. So we definitely, we're definitely trying. I think the hard part at UNT Dallas is obviously we are limited in the number of resources we have as a small institution. So what we try to do is definitely make sure that we are where these students are. I think when we have this conversation about, you know, the different things you guys have mentioned so far, is really understanding that a lot of this happens way before they get to the age of making the decision to come to college. You know, as an admission person, when you're talking to high school seniors, um, it's sort of a, a two-way thing. I think one, there's obviously most of the traditional system is built in trying to get students to think early about going to college because it impacts how they format their curriculum in high school, what choices they make, their college um, readiness, um, steps that they take, the courses that they're enrolled in, AP credit, dual credit, et cetera. So definitely getting to students earlier is one of our strategies here. So make sure that we reach them when it makes sense in regards to planning but also acknowledging that while that is ideal, most of our students don't make it to high school graduation, right? So when we're talking about those who actually get to the college graduation part and are able to accomplish that, about 40% of those are the ones who continue on and go to college. So what, what happens to those who didn't even make it to college graduation, right? So on our strategist, we want to make sure that we partner not only with high schools, but also middle schools, ninth grade, 10th grade, not just look at the senior um, grade to make sure that we're getting in front of those students so that they can see that college, there is a return on investment, that it is affordable, that UNT Dallas is here as an option. So all of our selling points that speak to any of our students, definitely talking to our males earlier mm -hmm. because we know that things such as, what am I gonna make? What's the investment that I'm making? What time, you know, away from potentially a job because they get, you know, they look at society in general and they see and hear messages about you don't need a college degree. You can get a good wage. Uh, you can go into a trade job. And again, not that college is for everybody. Obviously, there's some personal choices there. But I think if we're not even presenting the choices and the mm -hmm. options and kind of educating our students, then they don't get to see kind of what those options are and see themselves in that. Mm -hmm. But so now my, my question is, what's the difference between 
African-American males and females. Why are so many females determined to go to college? Have, have, have we, has it been through the generations that so many women are the breadwinners of their families and realizing that they need to make more bread? I mean, what is the difference? They're growing up in the same neighborhoods, the same type of families. What's the difference? Well, I think you have to divide that question also in, in two, Jeff. If we think about this and we interact on this question with, uh, with our guests, it's a question of not only college admissions, but it's college persistence. Right. And I'd like you guys to really talk about that. So, mm-hmm. Dr. Loving, you know, we talk about the difference between African-American males and African-American females. What's influencing the two sexes to come out with different kind of in- outcomes? Yeah. I, I think um, both uh, Lewis and, and Jeff's points um, are, are important ones, right? When, when you look at the economy that we've had and this expansion that we've had, you almost always think about just positive things coming out of it. And you think, hey, because families have more economic opportunities, that's necessarily going to lead to more students um, in college. But that's not necessarily the case. The opportunity to go out and um, and, and get an, a decent paying job at a, a large company straight out of high school is um, is something that occurs a lot more frequently in a good economy. And so you have this sort of, uh, you have in, in economics, we call it opportunity cost, right? And so for young men, a lot of times, especially when we think about trade schools, that's the, that's the opportunity cost. It's going and making money much sooner, or in some cases right now, versus waiting to make what could be a lot more money over your lifetime of income. But in terms of the in terms of the so- stories that they're getting, um, I think that black men and black women are hearing different things about what it's going to take for you to be successful in some ways. I think that people, prominent people like Michelle Obama, be, like e- any of the the prominent black women that you see out there that are talking about black girl magic, a large part of the discussion is higher education and some of the things that are coming out of that. And you don't hear about that as much when we're talking about successful uh, black men. So I think the answer to, to that question, at least the first part of it, in terms of whether or not they're choosing to come to college and be admitted is, is uh, it, you know, it's, it's nuanced in terms of um, in terms of those opportunities that exist out there, but then also in terms of the expectations. Right. I think that a lot of people, um, when you have a, a, a young black woman, because of the narratives that have been painted, um, even some of the things that have falsely been said about more black men being in and uh, in jail than in college, which makes is not black, true. Exactly. Falsely. That's right. Makes black women feel more like I am a lot more likely to be the breadwinner and I'm going to have to take care of not just myself, but any children that I choose to have. That's going to be a responsibility that I have to have, whether or not it is true. It's. Um, it's a notion that's out there that that motivates, I think, in a lot of ways, black women to, to say, OK, I'm going to stake my claim here. I'm going to go after my education and I'm going to be successful doing it. And there's expectations that they'll be successful doing it and they meet those expectations. Right. And that that is out there. 
Um, and it's obviously a possibility for young black men, too. But I think it's being stressed on nearly every level when when it comes to, to black women. And I think in a lot of ways, some black men are missing the message. And that's why it's important for us to get, us out, get it out there for them and to them. Yeah. Mr. Franco, are you hearing different things when you're interviewing uh, black males versus black females? Um, well, as far as UNT Dallas, we don't necessarily have an admi- uh, in the admission process, we don't have an interview, but just anecdotally and talking to students, talking to families, um, we don't necessarily hear different things. I think um, what uh, Professor Lemontino has mentioned is that um, students, the messaging that, that students get, you know, and like I said earlier, it starts way earlier. I think obviously an understanding that most of our students come from a low socioeconomic area. They don't have as many advantages in high school, you know, in the area high schools, depending on the resources, they're not exposed to the courses, the classes they need. So that's going to impact. So if they do make it to college, these students are going to be probably more likely be taking remedial college work. They're going to be needing, you know, financial aid. They're going to be needing scholarships. They're going to be trying to balance work and um, life, other circumstances, as well as going to school. So I think we see them, all of our students face those challenges, but I think they're a little bit more exacerbated uh, when we talk about our males of color, because I think that there's also some other stigmas, you know, obviously whether we dive into that today or not, but I think, you know, when you talk about mental health, when you talk about asking for help, when you talk about self-agency, advocacy uh, from male student perspective, you know, from the students that I work with, they feel like that if that's a sign of weakness or that's a sign of against their masculinity um, or that they're going to be seen as deficient if they do approach and ask for help. So I think at a campus like us that, you know, recently got, you know, from the report and the report card from ScholarShot, you know, as one of the top schools and number one school in supporting first generation students speaks to a lot of the interventions we're doing to address some of that across the board. Yeah. But still, at the end of the day, we recruited 19 out of 300 something students. Correct. I mean, so that's how many ended up enrolling. So um, as far as our strategy and the way that we uh, address outreach at UNT Dallas is we serve pretty much a 50-mile radius. So our our admission counselors are in all of the high schools. Uh, We don't um, give any preference, obviously, to any type of particular demographic, or we don't have, on the same token, any special initiative at UNT Dallas to target particular groups. So I think as we try to do the best we can to Um, make things accessible and to inform parents, which are a huge impact, particularly for our populations of color. Um, Yes, ultimately, students make choices about what they can afford, where it makes sense for them financially, uh, based on job, the economy, other factors. Um, And yes, we see that number either stay stagnant um, or not see as much growth as the other groups. But is there also something deeper at play here? Because when you look at other groups, Hispanics at this school have doubled the number of African-Americans and particularly males, Hispanic males, double African-American males here on campus. Many are growing up in the same economic conditions, um, you know, all the, the, those same type of things. You talked about getting to uh, young uh, black males early. Is there an ingrained stigma that, that we're placing on on the youth that low expectations, that they're not going to be successful, that they're going to end up in prison instead of college. Are are those things ingrained at a young age? If you look at the disciplinary statistics when it comes to young uh, black males in um, 
all the way from kindergarten up through high school, you see that they're far more likely to be suspended. They're far more likely to be sent out of the classroom. They're far more likely to have um, in-school law enforcement called on them, even for the same situations that you see um, young young white uh, males and females or young Hispanic males and females in some cases not uh, receiving the same type of disciplinary punishment. So it's one of those things where you I mean, school is school for 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 most people. That's the way that they think of it. And so um, to to extend an experience that hasn't necessarily been something that was enjoyable for you from kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade might not be the first thing that's on a person's mind. And I think we have to we have to think about it that way is all through um, all through primary school. Young black men have, in some cases, been looked at as a disruption and more likely to be, you know, treated harshly within the educational environment. Now, that's that's not something that we can necessarily do anything or do too much about by ourselves, um, although we do have a, a school of education. And so I think that we can graduate. I was just going to say that. Were, I was just going to say that. You have, that. You have a right. school of education here. Why not? Why aren't we training our teachers more more often to be able to be equipped to be in the classroom and provide the kind of encouragement, mentorship, support that many of these African-American males need to be successful? Absolutely. And I think one of the other things I would add is the point the professor's making is those um, out proportion or over-representation with disciplinary issues has an impact in your college, your ability to go to college, uh, to the extent that um, not really just academically, because you're missing out of class, you're spending more time in detention or suspension or out of the classroom, but also disciplinary records impact your access to certain in universities. Uh, when you're asked to you know, look at that as part of your uh, holistic review and see what kind of student, yes, there's the continuation of stereotypes of, like you said, being problematic, being you know, more prone to um, you know, having behavioral issues. So again, you definitely have that impact. So I think we not only need to address those, obviously, um, currently in the schools, but obviously, yes, as an institution that prepares future educators, I think we have a responsibility to see what, what is it that we're doing to make sure those uh, teachers, when they go back, particularly if we can recruit and get more you know, students of color, male students of color, African-American males, to consider a career in education, so that way they can be seen as role models and figures that a lot of these students are not seeing when they look up from their chair in the class. I, I want to give you a statistic, because this statistic shocked me. In uh, 2009, there were only 3.6% of undergraduate students were, were black males. However, they were 55.3% of football and basketball players at public NCAA Division I institutions. What does that say about us? What does that say about college communities? What does that say about society? I think it speaks directly to what is valued um, within those groups. And I think um, when we talk about setting expectations, you know, people tend to they tend to jump over the bars that we place there for them. And 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 we certainly see it with with college athletics. We see these kids get faster, 
stronger with lower body fat uh, percentages every single year in terms of their, their physical ability and in terms of their ability to absorb uh, increasingly complex, whether if you're talking about the NFL types of uh, offenses and de- defenses, um, we we ask this of these individuals, and by, by and large, they meet that they meet it every single time, right? And so what we're seeing is when we have when we hold a certain standard, then it, it it's it's met or exceeded. And so if we did the same thing when it came to higher education and expectations for uh, young black men as uh, as scholars and not just scholar athletes. And I'm putting my my air quotes on that because they really are mostly athletes who happen to be studying, too, in many cases. But if we you know, if we were serious about our expectations for for all of our students, I think we'd see the types of excellence in um, in scholarship that we see um, in, in athletics. I, I think that we we'd see that, and I think that for the um, for the schools that focus on it, the um, a lot of the historically black colleges and universities, what you'll find is that their persistence through some of the uh, universities may may still be difficult in terms of graduation rates, but then of those who graduate, they end up being the lion's share of uh, of people who are graduate who are in graduate and professional schools. So you'll see a small school like Morehouse College, um, it, seeming like it's out kicking this coverage in terms of. Um, in terms of creating black professors and black doctors. Why? Because the institution is really um, suited to making sure that they make it through and making sure that they understand once they make it through that they're going to uh, be successful. And then also setting the expectation that you will go to graduate school after you finish. Right. So it's, it's really about being intentional throughout the process and being aware of the issues that those students experience. Lewis, when you mentioned the fact that a lot of these students are coming in with having to take remedial classes it's the same thing even at schools who have you know the people look at Morehouse as a place that has high scholastic standards that's true but they also are dealing with a community that has high school students who haven't necessarily had calculus at all right but they come in and they want to be an engineer and so they have to start at um, start at with the remedial or leveling classes but there are many who start there and end up as doctors or engineers. And I think that that's, you know, to the extent that we can tell that story here and are likely to tell that story going forward here, we will get people who will who will want to be here and, uh, and, and, and continue on here. Attention UNT Dallas students. Does your resume need tweaking or are you in search of an internship? Better yet, are you looking to start a business? Well, our career services department is where you need to be. Under the direction of Arthur Lumsey Jr., this department provides career tips and guidance to get your professional journey on the right path. For more information, send an email to careerservices at untdallas.edu. And remember, everyone, blaze your trail. So I was going to bring up Terrence Maiden as um, a guy who went to school to play football mm-hmm. came out a businessman yeah and is now doing a lot of things to to help yeah. young kids yes you know, well there's nothing the matter education. with sports i mean sports are a really important um developmental tool mental and physical mm-hmm. tool for black men 
and we shouldn't look down on it. It's just sometimes when we look and see the proportions where there's so few graduates, but there's so such a large proportion of the teams are black male, something's not right there. And these kids are going through playing ball, but at the end of the day, they're not graduating. Right. They don't have a career. There's nothing else for them to do post football. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's out of sorts. There is great things that come out of um, participating in sports. And I urge every parent to find the right sport for their child, mm-hmm. male or female. But we have to look at what we're saying when we're, when we're participating in sports. Are we saying, hey, just be the best athlete you can be or be the best person you can be by participating in athletes but also getting uh, your studies on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in no way was I referring, you know, saying that, that ath- athletics is, is, is a negative oh. thing. Um, it's a great way for lots of students to be able to get into college. And then it really becomes, how do I apply myself in college? Because most likely I'm not going pro. And most likely I'm not getting, you know, $10 million contract. You know, I found that out, you know, <laughs> along my way, I was playing baseball. And then I started to look around and the competition kept on changing. Mm-hmm. Year after year, the competition got better. And I wasn't getting worse, but I just was not getting as good as the rest of the competition. Yeah. So I wasn't going to go to the pros. Yeah, and, and colleague of, of Dr. Loving, uh, Terrence Maiden is a perfect example of that. TCU football player, grew up right here in, 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 in the Dallas community. And, uh, you know, his ticket to college was, was through athletics, through football, mm-hmm. along with his brother, his brother Tim. Both of them. Neither went went pro, but both of them are very successful business people right now. Uh, they hold a camp here every summer called Elevate, where they bring in uh, young, mostly African-American males uh, to f- further their understanding of education and college and entrepreneurship and, and business and so forth. So, um, you know, the more people like that can get in the community as well uh, and, and teach, as, as Terrence is doing, um, you know, obviously, obviously the better. Excuse me, I'm being told it is Tim that is teaching here, not Terrence. They are identical twins. So, yeah, you know, there you go. It's, Tim, Terrence, I apologize. It's probably not the Tim. first time. <laughs> they're both doing great work, though. So, and they're both very involved in UNT Dallas. So uh, my apologies there. But, but, but again, to get them into the community and, and face-to-face, I think, mm-hmm. with, with young people who may not see their future in college or, 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 yeah. or see beyond the next day to be to be quite frank. You know? Uh, you know, I want to go back to something that Lewis was talking about, and that was, you know, the problem doesn't start at college. You know, it's not when, you know, they, they walk in through our doors and that's when the problem starts in both with admissions and with uh, persistence. It starts back maybe as early as elementary, middle school. You know, I'm looking at a report here. This was a study that was done at University of Pennsylvania. And one of the conclusions that came out of that study was that in comparison to Black females, black men take fewer notes in class going up through middle school. They spend less time writing papers than their female counterparts. And they, um, they do complete fewer uh, class assignments. So this whole behavior of disengagement with academics mm-hmm. starts at a very, very early age. And unless we're able to figure out how to address that... Um, it's kind of hard to see how kids, black males, are going to be attracted into the college system, that process. Because all those things are required to be able to be good at this co- thing called college. Yeah, and, and it's funny. When you think about all of those things you just read, my, my mind immediately jumps to, and what happened? What happens 
when they aren't taking notes? And what happens when they aren't turning in assignments? And what happens when they aren't engaged? And um, it, it leads me back to, okay, who's the leader in that situation? Well, it's, it's the educator. And so that person is obviously not saying, hey, this is something that needs to happen or engaging the parents. I think a lot of times, especially if they've had prior disciplinary problems with the kid, as long as he shuts up, they're probably not even thinking about that, that, uh, that young man, and that's a problem, right? Because even though, um, that, even though he is uh, not necessarily being a problem in the classroom, he's not getting out of the, uh, out of the experience what he ought to be getting, right? And so that, I think, you've, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, the, it's one of those deals where we have to be more proactive from the beginning mm-hmm. if we're going to have, uh, have expectations about people being able to succeed later because so many of those, those skills that are going to be necessary to carry you through a college experience, well, that, that experience starts before, well before college. And maybe that even follows through into something else, and Luis, you can speak to this. So we have a great program here called the Dallas County Promise, and it's open to high school seniors throughout Dallas County, free education. You can you, you fill out the promise, you make a pledge uh, that you're going to go start at community college for free, and then you can go from there to UNT Dallas and several other institutions for free. Now, I was told this is probably, I don't know, six months or so ago, but the trend is that Black males, while they they sign up for the the promise, they sign up for the initial part of the pledge. They don't follow through on the next steps that you have to do in order to start college, while other groups are doing that. And so, I just wonder, you know, what's what, what's behind what's, that? What, what's breaking down the, the engagement? Right. Yeah. You know, is it is it the fact that you know they may sign up because their parents told them they have to sign up? You know that may be part of that process, but the disengagement is really what I'm 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 pointing towards yeah. as to why they're not taking advantage of this fabulous program. You know the the fact that you could go to school for free, you know, takes away the economic issues that right. you may have. Which part of huge. the economic mm-hmm. issues because right. the other part is you have friends. To um, you know, Dr. Loving's point earlier is. You got friends that are out there who decide, hey, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to get a job. And they start earning money right away. So it's not just paying for school. It's what kind of money you have in your pocket. Yeah. Your friend is now driving a car. You're riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. You know, they're able to buy the cool clothes out there. You have your jeans on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're making sacrifices. Even if you have your tuition and, and boarding covered, you're still making sacrifices to go four years to college while your friends are out there earning money. That's a difficult challenge. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that gets lost when we talk about Dallas Promise, and that's one of the things that they've been, um, when they the program was kind of rolled out, they wanted to make sure that there was a two components. I think people kind of obviously because of the financial, the scholarship, the, the free part, get hung up on the, the that component of the free access to be able to go to. But there's really the second piece, which is that support piece, right? We talked about earlier that it's not just getting them in the door, but it's also getting them through the college experience and graduated. So the persistence, the retention piece. So making sure that we put into place systems of support for these students. So if we know, and I think you know, beyond just the admission piece, I think as a, as a university, as a, as a society, whatever way you want to look at it is if we know that these, we know these facts, we know that this is not something like Jeff mentioned in the beginning, that it's just 
suddenly happening. That's something that's been happening for a couple of decades now. And it's kind of what are we going to do about them? So it's really looking at things that sometimes may be uncomfortable or may be different or non-traditional when it comes to either admissions or student support services or from an academic standpoint in meeting the student at least halfway uh, and recognizing what they're coming and what they're meeting us with. So from an admission standpoint, if we know that they tend to have not the best preparation, you know, not the best literacy rates, not the best pre-kindergarten access, not a lot of the things that during those formative years, as we talked about earlier, set that foundation for you to be successful as you move through K through 12, then what do we do in the admission process to realize that they're not going to have the greatest SAT, ACT scores, that their class strength might be different, that they might have other assets and other strengths that they bring to their experience that we need to account for, that, that we need to be you know, aware of, because we know that those things, if they're partners correctly, if they're focused, if that student is supported, they will be successful. We see that here on campus, right? We have particular stories, particular examples of students who didn't think that they were going to go to college, didn't think that college was for them. They knew that the majority of their peers or their neighbors or family weren't going to college. So really everything was laid out for that to be a natural choice for them to go to work, like you say, to, you know, even if that was seen as constructive military, whatever it is that they might have seen as an option after college, after high school, excuse me, besides pursuing some type of post-secondary education, whether it's an associate degree, a trade, you know, certificate or diploma or going to pursue you know, a four-year degree and, and continuing on is, again, how do we make that something that those students see as it's possible for them, right? I think when, and not only things like seeing yourself, meaning with regards to representation and mentoring and so of those other strategies, but then also more importantly, I think, is how do we make students see the value in doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the value proposition for a student if I'm a 17, 18-year-old in high school and I'm, I'm seeing all these things we just talked about for the last 20 minutes, how do I make a decision in front of that to decide I'm going to change my circumstance or I think I can try this college thing or I'm going to try to go to UNT Dallas or sign up for the promise and follow through and see what I can do with this? Because it might be that I get a trade or I may get a vocation degree at DCCCD, um, but what's going to be that impetus for that student uh, to make that decision? Yeah, and it can be very hard to see yourself four years from now in your current predicament. And, and Luis, you mentioned we, we do have great stories here on campus. And I'll just mention two in particular. Uh, T.J. Vons, a graduate of our business school, uh, is an entrepreneur, T.J. the DJ. He has his own business. Uh, he also is a full-time employee here. Uh, he was featured on CBS 11 uh, last year before graduation. I encourage everyone, Google that, T.J. Vaughn, CBS 11. But you'll see he, he talks about the friends he grew up with and how most of them didn't go to college, how many of them are unfortunately in challenging situations now because they didn't make those proper decisions. Uh, he did, against a lot of odds that, that other people face, uh, another student, the uh, commencement speaker, Caleb Simmons at our at our fall commencement just uh, just last month. Uh, here's a young man who was essentially homeless when he came here. Um, his father had been out of the picture forever. His mother, unfortunately, was not up to uh, uh, being a mother and doing the things that, that come with that. Uh, he bounced around from home to home and at one point was working three jobs while he's deciding to go to college uh, and with help from uh, some staff members here, including Luis, who who is a, a big part in seeing him through his journey here at UNT Dallas. He not only graduates with a degree, he's the commencement speaker, 
And now he is a full-time employee at UNT Dallas and will very soon be able to go out and get his own apartment and afford his own car. So it's stories like that. And, and, and Caleb is in advising now and recruiting. So he, he'll be a front and center face of somebody who can, who, who can get in front of other students who look like him, who they can say, wow, okay, that could be me. I see the success that you're having. That could be me and get on that track. So yeah. the more we can see those, those types of stories. So Google Caleb Simmons. Google T.J. Vons and check out their stories and, uh, and and gain some inspiration from those two. So does the university have in place a really a formal mentoring program for these students that are coming through? And how is that structured <laughs> and what kind of success have you seen with it? Um, from, my, from my understanding, what I'm aware of, I don't think that we do have something that's particularly focused on uh, male students. I don't think that we have a, a mentoring program per se. Um, recently, however, I know through the state uh, legislature, we have some um, access to some funds for student success. And one of the things that we've launched this um, kind of actually this spring is something called Trailblazer Elite. It's a program that's focused on reaching certain students who are of a particular age group, uh, who are kind of full time, who come from maybe some not necessarily your students that are sort of like your BC average, uh, who are very have shown marks that are very persistent about uh, their major or their their career path, or they're very interested in kind of being successful. So again, a couple of different uh, factors that were put into there, um, and then this program as part of that activities that they're going to do, they're going to be given the opportunity to have a mentor. Uh, so it's composed obviously of male and females, uh, but they're doing some work to try to reach out to some on-campus folks who can serve as a resource to them in a mentorship role, as well as external community members, business folks who can or who want to be in that role. So again, I think there's a lot of different one-off programs or different initiatives. You know, such a group is working with this. You mentioned the Elevate Camp. There's different organizations that we work with, but I think we need to, and all those make a difference, right? Because it can't just be one single thing that's going to solve this. It's going to be a you know comprehensive approach. But I think we also need to look at if this is successful, how can we make it something that's sustainable and that's kind of broader and that maybe it's something that every student has the opportunity. Maybe some of them already have a mentor from another part of their college uh, or experience prior to college, but that if they don't have that social capital to be have, have an opportunity to meet somebody that who they see as a mentor, um, that they are given that opportunity. I, you know, I can say um, that going to college myself, we had a very, very small cadre of African-American male students when I went to college. And finding that administrator or professor on campus that was really interested in me made all the difference in the world of me being able to get through, getting over what I call the onlyness, not the loneliness, the onlyness, you know, being the only one, only African-American male in a class, being the only African-American male in a cafeteria, being the only African-American male in other kinds of social settings. Mm -hmm. Having, find, uh, finding and identifying and working with um, a real mentor on campus uh, really helped set the direction for my college career. I want to hear a little bit, maybe, Dr. Loving, how you're being a mentor on campus. Oh, well, um, I uh, <laughs> I think that onlyness comment that you have is something that um, that a lot of uh, a lot of 
African-Americans, especially those of us who've had a lot of experience in higher ed, something that we we feel. And so even though there were uh, I had a lot of black brothers and sisters at Morehouse College when I started my Ph.D. at Texas Tech. Well, by the time I finished, I was the first black Ph.D. in financial planning. So there weren't a ton of us. Right. And that was even with a uh, university that was trying to reach out through the Ph.D. project and other things Mm to uh, to have uh, potential uh, black students come there. And so um, having a mentor is extraordinarily important. Being a mentor is important to me. And so this is why it's important to me for all of my students. And that's of all races and backgrounds to to uh, be on LinkedIn or in Handshake. And so that we can always have a link to one another professionally, personally, um, that when an email is sent, I'm responsive to it, that I'm I'm actually there for my office hours so that students can speak with me if they have an academic issue or if they have another issue. Um, There are a lot of things that can just, you know, that come at you when you're in this new and sort of confusing phase in your life. And I think it helps to have a person who can uh, who can identify with you and help you through those situations. But I think one of the other things that helps is having an institution that's understanding and sort of creates the environment where people who want to be mentors um, can actually help people who feel like, hey, I understand that our students come from different backgrounds. So we want to be flexible in terms of how we we offer our courses. We want to make sure that we aren't too draconian in our approaches um, when it comes to students who have to work or might miss um, a, a certain assignment on a certain day and we have to accommodate them in different ways. And the nice thing that I found, especially at the uh, School of Business, is that my colleagues sort of we all have this understanding that hey our students are a bit different we need to make certain that we can accommodate some of the fact that you have students working three jobs or somebody might have have to be in a place where they don't they don't get to something as uh, quickly as we would have liked them to I want you here that's my thing is that if you got to bring your kid bring your kid we are actually this is the first institution I've ever worked and where we are so responsive to the needs of our students. So we're looking at a a Spark initiative, which will give people sort of um, financial help, financial advice, uh, tax preparation planning. But they're looking at all of the potential needs of the people in the community so that we're just not dealing with the um, deficiencies when students come in uh, and, and they don't have all of the classes there. We are trying to work and be proactive in the community so that we can resolve some of those deficiencies before they get here. And I think that is a powerful thing to be not just a mentor, but be in operating in an institution that has this as a, as one of its most important directives. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people may think, well, that sounds great. You know, that's talk. But there's actually now data to back that up. And Luis, you brought this up. Uh, so there's a Dallas-based organization nonprofit called ScholarShot, and they have actually done a study. They sent out a survey to all 35 public universities in Texas, 28 uh, responded, and using different measurables to look at how universities serve uh, low-income and first-generation students, uh, many of which we have right here. Seventy percent of our student body uh, is first generation. We know many of our students are low income. Uh, UNT Dallas came out number one 
uh, in that survey uh, for effectively serving first-generation low-income students. So there's, there's real data to back what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not just words here. And, um, it, and that means a lot because we are now, I mean, we are in the backyard of so many people who did not have that opportunity, uh, you know, just 10, 15 years ago. Um, and it's here. People are, are starting to learn more and more about UNT Dallas. And, uh, and so it's great to have you here. We love, we love having you teaching at UNT Dallas, Dr. Love. <laughs> I love being here. <laughs> you know, the, there is, um, there's some data that suggests that uh, black males, no matter what age they become enrolled, they're not persisting. So what are some of our thoughts around persistence here at UNT Dallas and the programs that we're using to maintain persistence? By persistence, I mean being able to stay here year after year and really get the degree. Yeah, absolutely. So I think definitely it starts with the first year. Um, um, black male students are more likely to drop out of their first year of college. Um, so we know that it starts really early. So at UNT Dallas, we have some things like, for example, we have a um, student success seminar. Uh, we call it a UGST course. Um, other universities call it a freshman success seminar. So right off the bat, students are all required to be in that class. Um, and then it teaches them some study, ma- uh, some time management, study skills, a lot of other uh, strategies to be successful as a student. Um, we also do a lot of early intervention. Uh, I think one of the things that, again, as you recognize what kind of institution you are uh, working to be and who your population is, Jeff, you just kind of gave some information about who we serve. And I think it's very important. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed about working at UNT Dallas is that it knows very well who it's trying to, uh, who it serves and who it's, what kind of institution it's trying to be. And so that also then it's reflected in the programming and the support system that it puts in place. So whether it's doing early intervention programs to make sure that students have contact and access with, whether it's an academic advisor or a professor to know when signs of struggle, when, you know, missing a textbook, when not having uh, received their financial aid on time to be able to buy textbooks. Um, So again, whatever the the situation might be, it's really treating uh, each student case by case and having that case management approach. Uh, Our academic advising is structured to provide, you know, some of that um, success coaching um, through using some peer mentors. So as, student, as soon as a student is admitted to the university, um, they get a phone call from a team of students who is reaching out to them to try to help them feel welcome, to help with their transition, to make sure that they've taken care of the sort of the, the steps, if you will, those logistical business steps about uh, transitioning and starting at UNT Dallas. So it kind of makes that uncomfortable um, or kind of unknown complex process uh, a little bit easier, hopefully. Uh, they come to orientation, so we uh, are, have a required orientation where students are um, sort of uh, onboarded and given some uh, not only awareness about what we have to support them. Uh, we have a lot of different resources. Again, we can spend a lot of time talking about our, you know, our support services, our tutoring services, our learning commons, um, a lot of the different things that are being done early on so that way students feel that, again, that they can see themselves being successful. I think that as we implement these other programs that are going to seek to have these mentorship components, I definitely agree. You know, having when I went to my undergrad, you know, there was also very few um, Latinx students, particularly um, males. And then as a Hispanic male, you know, we face a lot of other struggles and issues and machismo and, you know, other things, expectations. You could be working while you're inside the air conditioning, you know, versus another family member just having to do something else. So, again, a lot of different things and finding mentors, people that look like me. And I think also recognizing for anybody that sees themselves as somebody that can pay it back or forward, whichever way you want to look at it and helping a student is recognizing that they're very 
many times other unofficial ways to be a mentor uh, or be a um, of impact in a student's life. And it doesn't have to be that you are a formal mentor. I think a supervisor on campus being aware, like you mentioned about as a professor being aware in class, as a, as a supervisor on campus being aware that their first um, task is obviously being a, a student is being flexible when they ask for time off, when they're trying to study and go to work. You know, again, so just kind of being uh, really understanding who our students are and what their needs are. Uh, I think being a small institution, we're able to do that at a scale that perhaps other campuses or other universities can't. Um, and I've just been very privileged to work with a lot of our students here on campus um, and being able to see uh, how some of these strategies are making a difference. Uh, Lois, could you speak a little bit to how the university tries to engage, you know, even beyond the student, the parents? Because, you know, where it begins, I know for me personally, mm-hmm. where it begins was, you know, it was not something that I was going to choose to go to college. You know, that was a, an expectation. You were going to college. Even though my parents didn't go to college, I was going to college. My other two brothers were going to college. We, all three were going to college. It didn't matter what, this, you know, what you wanted to come up with. You were going to go to college. Mm-hmm. And how do we educate parents about college if they've not been? My parents knew very little. I was fortunate I had a good set of mentors that helped me get through that process. But how do you work with parents who may not understand the whole process of college, yeah. understand the payment process, the financial aid, the, you know, the four-year versus two-year, yeah. the, all the various dynamics of college, and can help navigate that for their children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, helping parents is something that's definitely impactful, and we use the term, obviously, parent, but any family member, any support system that the student has, because we also have to understand in serving the populations that we serve, that that's not a traditional mom and dad or that they're going to have a parent. You give the example of Caleb and kind of how his parental situation was, but just understand that whoever is there that's going to be supportive of the student, whether it's a high school counselor, a teacher, a coach, a church person, that they're all... Um, as much as we can, make them aware of that process. Um, going to college is not easy, right? Unfortunately, and coming from the admission side, I can attest to that. Um, we sometimes seems to be put more barriers that sometimes we think they're going to make things easier or are going to be helpful for us. But in the end, particularly to the populations that we're trying to reach, end up being something that perhaps intimidates or makes the process more complex or we make it even harder, whether it's the federal financial aid process and, and the forms of asked, the verification process. And again, we can spend probably another podcast on just that, you know, talking about how we pretty much are asking a student who is low income to continue to prove that they're low income and turn in more documents to to do that. So again, whether at UNT Dallas, obviously knowing our population, we try to offer programming for parents, whether it is FAFSA, TASFA nights where parents can bring their documents with students and sit down in our computer labs, or we go to some of the high schools we partner with through the Dallas County Promise and sponsor some nights where we are just sitting down. And whether you're coming to UNT Dallas or not, we help you complete the financial aid process, which we know is very key and important because that um, affordability and being able to pay for college and be comfortable in what your plan is going to be to do that is key to them making that decision. We also do presentations that are uh, bilingual because I think that a lot of our students, you know, if their parent or family member speaks Spanish or just isn't, um, has been first generation or new perhaps to the education system in the United States, even if they have some sort of education from their home country, then again, kind of how do we demystify and kind of explain some of the process 
that are impacted in the admissions or in, in any of the other um, pieces of the enrollment process. Um, next uh, month, February 4th, we're going to be at Mercado 369, which is a local business uh, in Oak Cliff, uh, hosting an information session, right? So we're going to the community, even though that's only like 10 minutes away from campus. So you could easily say, hey, they should come on campus. Um, we're going to go to to that community and be able to offer that program and make sure that parents that feel comfortable because I think sometimes they don't see stepping on a college campus something that's a place for them, uh, right? They feel like I can't go to that meeting, I can't go to that orientation. Do I have what I'm supposed to wear? Am I, I don't know the questions I'm going to ask. Who's going to be able to help me? Um, so again, we try to make sure that all of our information, our our documents, our process, uh, we try to make sure that we address some of the concerns that we know some of these parents are going to have um, and to make it as easier as we can. Um, I think ultimately, too, uh, under, understanding that parents, regardless of the, the ethnicity of the student, are a partner with us. And if we don't see them as partner, I think a lot of times, and I think universities are changing, you know, obviously there's some regulations like FERPA and privacy and things that kind of outline our relationship. But I think a lot of times, particularly these younger generations and the parents, you know, when we talk about, you know, uh, Gen X students and millennials, et cetera, their parents are a little bit more involved than perhaps mm-hmm. parents before used to be. Um, and then you do have this misconception or stereotype of the helicopter parent or now the bulldozer parent that are going to come and try to get everything done. And some of our parents, some of our students perhaps don't have that type of parent. We want to make sure that we also don't see them as somebody that's in the way or that's counter to what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But how do we leverage whoever that support system is, whether it's a parent, a grandma, you know, a step aunt or, you know, a godparent to make sure that they're as much as we can inform them of the resources and how they can support their student. Because sometimes they're the ones that have the relationship when the student starts feeling like they're going to drop out or they can't do this anymore. They're going to go to them. And we want them to know, have you talked to Mr. Franco? Have you gone and talked to your academic advisor? Have you talked to this office on campus, to your professor? Um, so again, we want to make sure that we bring everybody into that experience, not just the student. Yeah. You know, th- this has been a fantastic uh, discussion. We are not going to solve this problem today, but we are getting the information out. Jeff? Well, I was just going to say, too, that the the opportunities here at UNT Dallas go even just beyond getting an education. I mean, we're sitting here in, in southern Dallas, and you look around, there's so much undeveloped. We, we have a program in the School of Education. Teachers commit, or aspiring teachers commit, to go back to uh, their communities or, or, or in these uh, financially uh, disadvantaged communities and teach in those areas. Think of the School of Business turning out entrepreneurs, business people that can start businesses around around campus here, restaurants, hotels, you name it, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it is so underdeveloped here that there's so much within the grasp of the young people who are here. If they're able to see that, get here, get a degree, and, and, and go out. I mean, who knows what this area could look like in 20 years? It's just uh, untapped you know, un- untapped opportunity out there. And uh, so anyway, it's great, uh, great discussion. Dr. Loving, thank you so much for being here. Luis Franco, thank you. And uh, Greg, my co-host, thank you for being here as always. It's always a pleasure to, uh, to be here at the Urban Advantage. The Urban Advantage podcast is a production of UNT Dallas and recorded on campus in Southern Oak Cliff. Our hosts are Jeff Kaplan and Greg Campbell. Our production team is Jared Horn, Shania Anderson, and the voice talents of Dean Boyd. 
If you like the show, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow at UNT Dallas on any social media. For more information or to reach out, head to our home at untdallas.edu slash urban advantage.